time and chance overtake them all is a key phrase in our passage today. I think it's also a key understand, to understanding the whole book of Ecclesiastes, specifically when it comes to life under the sun. It's important for us to know what Solomon means by time and chance, because probably it doesn't mean what we might initially think at face value. Uh, I remember a guy from our YMCA Bible study in downtown Columbus who countered my view of the sovereignty of God with this verse. But the question is, is that valid? Rather than random, unconnected events happening in time, chance means something else, and we'll get to that shortly. In this part of Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses the idea of man cannot know four times between chapter 9 and chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. He's once again reminding us of our limitations. We cannot know what will happen because life is unpredictable. The fastest don't always win a race. The strongest don't always win at war. Wisdom cannot guarantee success because there are so many exceptions and contingencies in life under the sun. We cannot guarantee a good outcome because life is unpredictable. How many sports stars or politicians have had to eat their words when they've guaranteed victory only to prove this principle afresh? One might look at a passage like this and think, well, Aaron, throughout, you've been saying that our world isn't spinning chaotically out of control, but here it has the word chance. But what does chance mean? Does it mean random with no cause? The ESV Study Bible says this, While not denying God's sovereign ordering of affairs, the preacher admits that from a finite, fallible human perspective, many things that occur in the world have the appearance of being the result of pure chance. Matthew Henry says about this subject, We call them chance, but really they are according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God here called time. One more, Jameson Fawcett and Brown writes this, Chance is not a power independent of God, but is that which happens to man independently of his own control. If God be our friend, the powers arrayed against us, however formidable they look, cannot destroy us. We are subject to divine providence as we live in this world. That's something the founding fathers of America knew so well, and if you read their writings, they talk about it all the time. God's divine, invisible hand of providence. That doesn't mean we don't do what we know to do. We do do what we know to do, but it doesn't guarantee a certain outcome. Things come into our lives that are unpredictable, and it happens to all of us. We're all limited by time, and we're all subject to God's divine providence, which, when we don't have our eyes on him, can look very random and chaotic. The title of today's message from Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is simply Time and Chance. Time and Chance. And so let's read our passage. Ecclesiastes 9, we'll begin in verse 10 and finish this chapter today. Uh, By the way, we're on track to finish Ecclesiastes somewhere in the middle of next month. And so we'll look forward to what the Lord has for us as we finish this. But today... Our verses for consideration are Ecclesiastes 9, beginning in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. And neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net, and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Verse 13. Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounding it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. 
Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a roar among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word, Lord. Every one of us needs your word. Not one of us have come here today without needs. We all have needs from the preacher all the way down to everyone here, Lord. Um, And I pray that you would help us not to try to escape what your word has to say to us. And that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. That your word would have its um, sanctifying place in our hearts and lives and be effective. Remove distractions from our hearts and from around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Solomon encouraged us to enjoy life under the sun. He's been doing that quite often. But to do so, we have to take a realistic view of life under the sun. It can't be overly optimistic or or pessimistic, suspicious of everyone and everything, or fatalistic. Whatever will be, will be. We must do all that we can to view this life as a gift from God with a view towards heaven and make the most of every opportunity presented to us. So with that, let's look at our passage in point number one. We'll see in verse 10, be diligent in everything while you still have time. Be diligent in everything while you still have time. We should be diligent in everything that we do. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever you have the power or the means to do, whatever appears to you to be accomplished, opportunities that are presented for you to perform, do it with all your might, your ability, your strength. The Jews of this day looked at work not as a curse, but as something to be done as stewardship from God. In fact, there's an old rabbinical saying that goes like this. He who does not teach a son to work teaches him to steal. So lest we think that Solomon's idea of enjoying life under the sun means that there's no work to be done, he re-emphasizes the need for us to put the effort in to do what's right. Rather than lethargy or apathy, he recommends that we put all of our energies into the tasks that God has given us to do. And we do everything diligently, and he gives us a reason. Because the time to do so is limited. He says there is no activity or work or or planning. Uh, The word planning actually has the word logic in it. There's no uh, device or reason or, or knowledge or wisdom. Again, that can mean skill or ability. There's none of those things in Sheol where you are going. This Hebrew word, Sheol, can mean hell. At times it it does mean that, or the pit. But here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, most of the translations have the word grave. In fact, the Septuagint has the Greek word Hades, the place of the dead. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 35, Jacob said of Joseph, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. He wasn't saying he's going to hell. He's saying, I was going to the grave. Uh, And and in fact, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. So in the way that Hebrew poetry works, Sheol and death are actually synonymous there. So he's not saying anything about hell in this verse. He's saying there are none of those things in the grave where you are going. And so working for the Lord is an opportunity with an expiration date. The day of our death is the day that our service will cease and we'll no longer be able to earn the rewards that we'll enjoy for all time. While we're here, we are representatives of Christ and what we do as representatives of Christ matters. Uh, The New Testament Um, gives this principle as well, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
verse 23 of the same chapter, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Jesus told us to work now because the night is coming where no one will be able to work. Warren Wiersbe wrote, if we fear God and walk by faith, we will not try to escape or merely endure life. We will enjoy life and receive it happily as a gift from the Lord. It's now or never. There's no making this right after we die. So one who sees these things right, rightly will always be looking for an, an, a good work, an opportunity that God leads, that will lead uh, to advancement of God's kingdom, that he brings across our path. It's not a work to earn salvation, but that which will be rewarded eternally, working for the Lord. We're currently in the time of sowing, and we're going to reap eternal benefits, but we must put our hand to the plow now. And so point number one from verse 10 is be diligent to work for the Lord while there is time. And secondly, from verses 11 and 12, we see that time and chance are common to all mankind. Time and chance are common to all mankind. Look with me at verse 11. We'll see that time and chance affects outcomes. Time and chance affects outcomes. Solomon says, I again saw, or I considered, under the sun. And he then gives five human abilities that have an expected end. But spoiler alert, it doesn't end the way that we thought it would. Our human abilities or talents do not guarantee success. Now what Solomon is not saying here is that the fastest never wins. The general rule is that Usain Bolt is going to win a foot race. The strongest is victorious in battle, but it's not always so. And this is because there are other factors outside of our control, not the least of which is the providence of God. So he says, the race is not to the swift or rapid. The race, this is a run, a trial of speed. And we expect the fastest to always win, but it doesn't always happen that way. That's the lesson of the tortoise and the hare, right? Where the hare should have won, got overconfident, and the tortoise won. Pride often leads to defeat in the race of life. In that situation, though, it was self-inflicted, but there are unexpected obstacles that happen, like perhaps a misplaced pebble. In 1984, I was in Los Angeles when the Olympics were happening, and I still remember pretty clearly the race where a woman from South Africa named Zola Budd was in the race against uh, an American runner named Mary Decker. And they made contact with each other, and Decker went down. Now, she may not have been the fastest in that race. She was favored to compete for a, a gold. And that obviously didn't happen when she went down. Um, but it happened because of something outside of her control. The race is not always to the swift. The battle is not to the warriors. Now, the battle in the Septuagint is actually the Greek word. We get the word polemic from. What is a polemic? It's a battle for truth. So this word speaks of fighting or warfare. Warfare is not always won by the most powerful or valiant. Was David or Goliath the favorite in that battle, do you think? Goliath. God defeats the strong in battle all throughout scripture. In Psalm 76, verse 5, we see that God can take away the strength of the mighty. Uh, Psalm 76, 5, the stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into sleep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. If God chooses to, he could keep the warriors from even being able to use their hands. Think about Jonathan, and, and one armor bearer put a put a host of Philistines to host to flight. And that's just a couple examples of we could list some to stay here until three o'clock going through these examples if we wanted to. But the battle is not always to the warriors. Neither is bread to the wise. Bread here refers to food. The wise aren't always the best breadwinners. This speaks of our sustenance, our livelihood. 
nor wealth or riches to the discerning. The word discerning, some of the other translations, NIV has the word brilliant. The King James has men of understanding. Speaking of those who are mentally distinguished, there are those with many gifts and abilities and much intelligence that you would think were destined for success in this life, but it doesn't happen that way. It made me wonder this week as I was thinking about this, what we would uncover if we did analysis of all the people who were voted by their high school senior class that they were most likely to succeed throughout the ages. You would probably see a lot of mixed results in that, I would guess. And also, nor favor to the men of ability. Favor is the, the word grace in Hebrew. Uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's the same word here as favor. It, it speaks of God's pleasure. No, nor favor to men of ability. They don't always get favor, the diligent, the learned. And he gives a reason why he's made all these statements. He, he's given these different statements, these premises. Now he's going to give a reason why. For or because time and chance overtakes them all. The word time here is the word for seasons. There are different seasons in life, and it brings different things. Chance has the idea of occurrence. It has nothing to do with blind luck or, or gambling. It has to do with things that happen in this life. And we say things like, I happen to be at the right place at the right time. That's the idea here. Well, who is it that had you at the right place at the right time? God does. God does. A comedian once said, I'm a great believer in luck. I find that the harder I work, the more I have of it. The harder I work, the more I have of it. Time and chance is universal. It overtakes us all. It happens to us all. It befalls, in some of the other translations, it befalls us all. Uh, Chuck Swindoll wrote this, the hand of God has a way of bringing about contrasting results rather than expected and logical results from a human perspective. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. I want to explore a little bit more about this idea of, of time and chance. First Samuel chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. First Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guild offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. Watch. If it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand, God's hand, that struck us. It happened to us by chance. If you know the story, you know that it went as, as they then knew that it wasn't by chance that that's what would happen. So what was the conclusion? Was it God's hand that struck, struck them, or did it happen by pure chance? It was, it was God's hand, yeah, that struck them with this, and they had to return the ark for this um, melody to cease. Uh, we won't turn there for time's sake, but in 1 Kings chapter 22, um, Ahab was killed by a, a stray arrow, and Jehoshaphat survived. Well, well, if you know the story, Ahab had stacked the deck so that they would go after Jehoshaphat, but a stray arrow happened to kill Ahab. That was God's plan at that time. So as we wrestle through this, a verse that's helpful is Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Think about that. Every decision of a lot 
a random rolling of the dice, we might think, is from the Lord. Amos chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Of course, that's in the context of Amos being a prophet. And when God is working against any people, he's going to win that battle every time. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15, Jehaziel spoke um, to Jehoshaphat these words from the Lord. He said to Jehoshaphat, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. He's saying, you're you're outnumbered, right? There is this great multitude, don't fear. Why? For the battle is not yours, but God's. God's. Doesn't mean we don't prepare for battle. We do prepare for battle. But understand that we get victory only as God gives it. A couple more verses along this line. It's an important point. Turn to... Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. This is Moses addressing the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know. He gives the reason that he, that God might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, Moses has an understanding of the human heart and our tendencies. My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth then he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God wanted them to know that it was him that made them prosper, not themselves. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Jeremiah says this, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this. Saying, you want to know what you should uh, aspire to, what, what you should think is, is a valuable thing? That he understands and knows me. And so let me ask you, how are you doing at pursuing God today? In putting yourself in places where you're able to pursue God and know him better. If you're not, you're robbing yourself of opportunities of what's most important. The uncertainty of outcome should not paralyze us. We're still called to do many things as Christ followers, and we do all that we know to do, everything that, that's put in front of us to do. But we must leave the results with God. Uh, as mentioned several times over the last few weeks, Salem Bible Church has gone through a transition recently, and Ben DeMar is now the senior pastor. And we rejoice with them. We rejoice over that. And this was done with much planning and prayer and strategy. I wasn't privy to all that, but I, I assume that that's true. And they did all that they know to do. And now the results of Ben's ministry and Doug's continuing ministry, by the way, are where it's always been. God's hands in God's hands. We're seeking God's face about joining up with Maranatha. We should discern what God has for us. But ultimately, no matter what happens, we must leave it with God and not be confident about what our idea of success looks like. We work hard. We seize the opportunities before us. But we also must leave time and chance in God's hands better to leave the results to than our great God. 
In verse 12, we see that Solomon has observed sudden ends. Sudden ends. Moreover, or for as much as he knows, he's observed or recognizes that man does not know his time. This word time, it's the same word for seasons above. He doesn't know his time. Here it can be understood as the time of misfortune or adversity, potentially that which culminates in death. I say that because of where he goes next. He says, like a fish that's caught, seized in a treacherous net. A fish that's taken in a treacherous, or, or some translations have the word cruel, in a cruel net. The net is a trap. It's a device meant to capture. And then he gives another illustration. Birds trapped in a snare. The trapped is the same word as the one used above about the fish. The snare here, though, is a slightly different word. Similar idea, though. He says, just like these fish and these birds, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time. A season of sorrow. A time of affliction or adversity. The idea here is it suddenly falls on them. It's in an instant and often unexpected. It reminded me of the example of the the man who was building up bigger barns. He's having this conversation about what he's going to do with all this stuff. And instead of investing it into God's kingdom, he says, well, we'll just build bigger barns. In our language, build bigger bank accounts, right? And what was said to him in Luke chapter 12, verse 20? God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? It suddenly fell on him. When a trap is sprung for a bird or a fish, is caught in a net, it's not a long process. It happens in an instant. One moment, oblivious freedom. The next moment, trapped. And this happens to us too. There are circumstances that nullify our abilities to make something happen. The bird and the fish are sometimes caught because of their keen interest in the bait. But other times, they get caught in the net as they're just swimming along, minding their own business. Sometimes we're caught in temptation, as James says. We're lured away by our own lust. But other things happen to us outside of our control where we didn't do anything wrong. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 23, of those caught in the trap of a harlot, Solomon says this, until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. He's heading towards a trap, and he doesn't know it. For us, we should never be so comfortable in our circumstances that we're overly surprised and despairing when change comes. Remember that it's God who gives us adversity, and it's God who gives us prosperity. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, we saw that. Our abilities will not overrule that. If God is bringing adversity, none none of our abilities will cause that to prosper. If God is bringing us prosperity, we can't overrule adversity. And he says that he does that so that man cannot find all these things out. God is going to accomplish his purposes. In Ezekiel 12, verse 13, it says this. This is God speaking. He says, I will also spread my net over him. Who's setting the trap in this one? God is. And he will be caught in my snare, capital M, and I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. Hosea 7, 12. When they go, I will spread my net over them. This is God speaking again. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Now on the other side of this, of, the, of what, how God traps the wicked, are the righteous. In Proverbs 29.6, By transgression an evil man is ensnared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. In Luke 21, verses 34 and 35, there's a warning here. Jesus gave a warning not to be trapped. Be on guard. 
so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Have you felt this week weighed down by the worries of life? Jesus says, don't, it's a trap. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. One more, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Speaking of those who are not gods in in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, the wicked, the unbelievers, those who wrong will not escape God's trap in the end. And as we saw last week, Asaph comforted himself comforted himself in the end of the wicked. Remember, the whole thing changed when he went into the sanctuary in Psalm 73. And so what do you make of all this? Well, in our endeavors, we should plan. We should work. We should prepare. But we also must come to grips with the fact that all the planning and all the hard work does not guarantee success. We're dependent upon God. And sometimes when momentum is built and things are trending in the right direction, a trap is sprung, an unexpected curve is thrown, and we must not let that that throw us into a tailspin. And you say, well, my life hasn't gone the way that I've expected. And my answer to that is, whose has? Whose has? We don't write our own story. God is writing our story. So be diligent in the work while you still have time. Time and chance is common to all mankind. And now the final point today, point number three, from verses 13 to 18, we'll see that timely counsel is only useful if followed. Timely counsel is only useful if it's followed. Verse 13, what got Solomon's attention about wisdom He says, I I came to see as wisdom under the sun. Here the word see means he observed it or he witnessed it. Wisdom. Again, we've defined that as skill in living under the sun. And he says, it impressed me. It impressed me. It, It seemed great or exceedingly high. This thing that he's talking about impacted him significantly. Well, Solomon's point in Ecclesiastes And all that he said, it's not that we disregard wisdom. Because no matter what, he still calls it better than folly. There's value in wisdom in that it makes us useful to others in this life. And it's better than walking as a fool, obviously. But timely wisdom must be followed to be useful. In verses 14 and 15, we see that wisdom can deliver in difficult situations. Wisdom can deliver in difficult situations. There was a small city with few men in it. Uh, There's no indication that this was an actual event. It's likely just a a sort of a parable that Solomon uses to make this point. Can't say that for sure, but it sure seems that way. The word small here means the little or least of the cities. city was a guarded place. Usually it had walls around it. And he talks about the few men, a small population. And the small population didn't have the power to protect their city from the mighty. They may have had a wall, but it would have been no match for what was coming against them. Because here comes a great king who came to it. Uh, The word great is actually the same word that was translated impressed above. It means exceedingly high and noble, powerful royal came and surrounded or besieged the city walls. And he constructed large siege works against it. He, he built mighty bulwarks, great towers. That was how oppressors trapped their adversaries in those days. And they, there was found in, in the city a poor wise man. He appears on the scene out of nowhere, right? This indigent but wise man was present and was cunning. Nobody would have chosen him to be a great deliverer. But he delivered the city by his wisdom. He rescued the city city with his skill. Saved it by using his wit. 
Now, it doesn't give any detail about how he did that. But in, in some way, his advice presumably led to a strategy that made what was a, an indefensible city defendable. It made unbeatable enemies beatable. Now, as you study this passage, um, one of the writers that I use, Warren Wearsby, notes that the Hebrew in this verse can be translated, he could have, not that he did save the city. So you have some of the commentators will take the view that the advice was unused, which may be the idea after you consider what came after it, but I take it to mean that the city was actually rescued by him. And then nobody remembered that poor man. Nobody mentioned him again. Nobody recorded what he had done. Uh, and actually the word mentioned, recorded, this can have the idea of rewarded. Nobody rewarded him. He didn't get any benefit from this great deliverance. The circumstances forced them to listen to him for a time, but they soon forgot him after this deliverance was over. Reminds one of something Solomon has said in the past in Ecclesiastes 2.16. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Everyone seems to love an underdog story. This poor man, he snatched a great victory out of the jaws of defeat, but his fame did not endure. He went back to being poor and invisible to society, with no reward of wealth or social status or honor. And this can happen to us. And if we're putting our hope in payment in this life, we're going to miss what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount about our rewards being in heaven where they will not fail. Treasures on this earth will fail. Things that we do will be forgotten won't be remembered, won't be brought up again. Joseph was an example of wisdom which was used to help the cupbearer, remember? Um, in the closing chapters of Genesis, he helped the cupbearer, but you remember what happened? He was left forgotten in a prison after helping the cupbearer for a time. Because after that, in a time of great need, Joseph was remembered and the Pharaoh listened to his wisdom and Egypt was delivered. Wisdom must be heeded to be useful. It must be heeded, heard, listened to, followed to be useful. And so in verse 16, Solomon makes this declaration. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. This word better is the word we're, we're so used to this word now in Ecclesiastes. It's, it's used all over the place. It means um, beautiful or pleasant. We might think of it as preferable. It's better than strength. This word strength has the idea of force. We might think of it as brute force. And this is true of God's wisdom. And yet strength will get most of man's votes if given the option, right? They would pick strength over wisdom. Proverbs 21:22 says this, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. A wise man does that. Ecclesiastes 7:19, verse we looked at several weeks ago, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in the city. Many people try to force their way by brute strength, but wisdom is surely to be preferred. Someone may be able to overpower another, but wisdom outwits the fool. And the wisdom of the poor indigent man is despised. In verse 16, this word despised, it's actually the same Hebrew word that's used in Isaiah 53 to describe Jesus. He was despised and rejected of men. It's a word of contempt and scorn. And by the way, some wouldn't listen to Jesus because he was a carpenter's son. His wisdom was also despised. And the poor man's words are not heeded. Now, if, if this poor man in verse 16 
is the same as the poor man that, that was spoken of in the hypothetical in verse 15. I can sort of see some of the commentary's view that he, he was ignored. That would be strong, but I don't think the language here is definitive. About this poor man, they ignore his counsel. They didn't heed it. That word heed has the idea of hear with intelligence. Obey would be a good synonym to that. It went in one ear and it went out the other. This poor man, though wise, he lacks the status and clout to have his voice heard. Swindoll wrote, wise counsel is never popular, rarely obeyed, and seldom remembered. Even though wisdom isn't always heeded, and sometimes it's despised, it's still preferred over physical or brute strength. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Christianity is not well thought of in our society at this time. The funny thing is, we have the truth. There's no wisdom outside of God's people because what is the beginning of wisdom? It is the fear of the Lord. But God's word is despised, it's not regarded. This is so regrettable because wisdom is available. It reminds me so much of the passage in Proverbs chapter 1 where Lady Wisdom is crying out in the busy places for anyone who will stop and pay attention. It's available in the open square. Follow my wisdom, she says. But even the words of the wise heard in quietness, restfulness, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. There's so much in the Proverbs and other places that have to do with not only what is said, but how it's said. Wisdom should be spoken with sincerity and calmly. It's not that there's not a place for passion. There surely is. But the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. We have this internal dialogue that's going on in our hearts. We know God's wisdom, but the world and our human nature shouts against his quiet and peaceable wisdom. It tries to rationalize our sin, tries to justify it, explain it away. So let me ask, are you listening to the quiet wisdom of God or the shouting of your flesh and this world that bombards you and me every day? The enemy shouts loudly, uses the logic of this world to offer superficial happiness rather than God's truth. Don't listen to those voices. Listen to the spirit of God through the word of God instead. That's our standard of living. It's what helps us to know Christ, and it's what protects us from the dangers of this life. And I tell you, for your own good, if you don't have a daily time in the word of God, you're a sitting duck. You're a sitting duck for the enemy, the thoughts of this world. In verse 18, we see the destructive nature of sin. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. The words weapons of war, it's instruments that are used for battle. It can be armor, just the stuff for war. Now, it's of note that in this context, wisdom here is opposed to the sinner, not the fool. And so here it must refer to God's wisdom that we're talking about here. And so if we walk in wisdom... We will have God on our side. And as Romans says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But one sinner destroys much good. One trespasser, one who misses the mark, destroys. The word destroys can, can mean it causes the parish. Uh, or the idea is to wander away. It causes it to be destroyed. 
So let me ask, what's the first example in our Bible of one sinner destroying much good? Anyone think of that? What's the first example of one sinner destroying much good? Who said it? I heard someone say it. Adam. Yeah, Adam. Absolutely. Sin destroys not only the one who's committing the offense, but also those around them also suffer. How often in scripture we see this principle play out. The sin of Achan, we saw from Joshua 7. Sin isn't done in a vacuum. Others are affected. Another example is King Manasseh. By the way, again, we could stay here until 3 o'clock talking about examples of this. But another example is Manasseh, the king of Judah, who followed Hezekiah, his father, and undid much of the great reforms and, and sinned greatly. As much good as a wise man might do when his wisdom is followed, one who is wicked can bring much mischief. And the sinner will not only destroy much good, ultimately he destroys himself as well. few points of life application and then we'll close this morning number one be thankful for events that reveal your dependence on God be thankful for events that reveal your dependence on God we do all that we know to do Sometimes we set out to do something we feel called to do, and it ends in great disappointment. Even at times when things seem so promising, and we seem so sure, time and chance happens to all. We cannot guarantee a certain outcome. We're dependent on God, and we will find out the end of those things as we walk through whatever it is. The fact that the battle is not to the strong, and the race is not to the swift, and the bread is not to the wise, and the wealth is not to the discerning, and favor is not to the men of ability, forces us to do one more thing after we've done all that we know to do. It forces us to leave the results in God's hands and trust him. It's hard for us because we want to know the outcome. We want to know that our investment is going to end with a certain um, benefit or whatever it might be that's in our minds. But life circumstances are unpredictable. There is no formula to accomplish some end. We must trust God. That's why the lyrics to the song, Be Still My Soul, are so precious. Through every change, he faithful will remain. He faithful will remain. Be thankful for events that reveal your dependence on God. And then secondly, keep walking in wisdom. Keep walking in wisdom. It may never be recognized for what it is. People may never listen or follow uh, wisdom, any wise counsel you might give. It may never get its due under the sun. Yet Solomon still assigns its value as greater than strength. Don't trade in wisdom for something else, even if it's not heeded. Keep walking in the wisdom of God revealed in his word. And then finally, number three, be aware of how your own sinfulness can destroy much good. Be aware of how your sinfulness can destroy much good. Just as wise words rightly timed can bring much good, one sinner can destroy a lot of good. Wisdom can accomplish great things in this world, it's worth chasing after, but its benefits can be undone by sin. Our church is in a time of uncertainty right now. Times of uncertainty are often a hotbed for disunity and conflict. Realize again that you don't sin in a vacuum. And your relationship with God, whether good or bad, can bring much good or much harm. Be on your guard through times of uncertainty against the schemes of the enemy of souls. Be aware of how your own sinfulness can destroy much good. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior today, understand that just as wisdom called out 
in the concourses in Proverbs chapter 1, Jesus calls out and makes salvation available for all. He simply says, trust me alone. Trust the sacrifice that I made for you on the cross and your sins will be forgiven. That's an open invitation to repent of your sins and trust Jesus as Savior. It's the best thing you'll ever do. just get so um, there's so much instruction in Ecclesiastes so practical for us right where we live I trust that you too are seeking God's face through the word of of God as we go through this time and, and always let's pray Father thank you for your word it meets us where we are. It um, tenderizes our hearts. It brings us back to truth, Lord. We get so um, out of calibration. We need your word to recalibrate us, point us north again. Thank you for how you do that. And I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts to pursue you, to love you, to serve you with everything we have while we have time, to put a high price on wisdom, to not get thrown into a tailspin when things don't happen the way that we think they should or hope that they would but that all of this would just cause us again to be stripped of our dependence on self, our dependence on others, our dependence on this world. Strip us of that so that we would depend wholly and fully upon Jesus Christ. You're dependable. Help us to find rest for our souls in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.